Hello and welcome to a podcast on ethics and obstetric anaesthesia. My name is William Herrick Griffiths. I'm Vice President of the Royal College of Anaesthetists and Professor of the Practice of Anaesthesia at Imperial College London. And it's a real pleasure to host this discussion and debate with three of the doyens of obstetric anaesthesia. This podcast is brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists in cooperation with the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association. First of all, we're going to ask Felicity to in introduce yourself to the registrants. Hi, I'm Felicity Platt. I'm immediate past president of the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association and an elected um, member of the Council of the Royal College. And I've been practicing obstetric anesthesia for well over 20 years. David, can you beat that? Uh, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Bogart. I'm an obstetric anesthetist in Nottingham. Uh, and uh, I was uh, uh, a consultant there until recently, uh, retiring after 32 years of consultant practice. Uh, also, uh, I was on the Council of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, so I recently demitted my post, but I now chair the college's uh, ethics committee, and I have an interest in medical legal matters. And Nula. Hello, my name's Nula Lucas. Uh, I'm a consultant anaesthetist at Northwick Park Hospital in North London. It's a busy district general hospital. I've got a particular interest in obstetric anaesthesia, and I currently chair the education subcommittee of the Obstetric Anaesthetists Association. Well, welcome all three of you. We're going to start with a clinical scenario. Now, this is a real clinical scenario. It happened to me a few years ago, and very similar things may have happened to you. And it's a story of a patient whom I shall call Poppy. Uh, Poppy is a journalist married to Toby, who's a lawyer. Uh, their first pregnancy, she had a very carefully prepared birth plan, which had been printed out and signed by the two of them. And the birth plan very, very clearly said that under no circumstances, and those were the precise words, were under no circumstances will I accept epidural analgesia in the first stage of labour. Although, of course, well, if it came to cesarean section, she would demand epidural analgesia, but it was very clear, signed, dated. It will come as no surprise to you at all to learn that her labour was not straightforward. She had an, an occipito posterior position. She had a very long, 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 long labour. She was very, very tired. She became exhausted, was in extreme pain and changed her mind. I got the call from the midwives, epidural room four as ever went to room four, walked into the room to see an exhausted woman in agony asking for an epidural and a man sitting rather po-faced in a chair who was saying to his partner, but Poppy darling, we decided we wouldn't have an epidural. To which Poppy said, Toby darling, this isn't our pain, it's my expletive pain. I want an epidural. So there you are, very simple scenario, you may have come across it before. A woman in her right mind, not coerced by pain or exhaustion, decided not to have an epidural, and now, coerced by pain and exhaustion, is demanding an epidural. So, there's the scenario. What do you do, Felicity? Um, interesting, and you're right. I think that's a scenario that we've all come across. And I think it's 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 known as the Ulysses Directive, isn't it? When, you know, sort of even when I'm begging for such and such, you must refuse me. Um, from a legal 
standpoint, if the woman has capacity, then she she has every right to change her mind. And you should, um, if she asks for an epidural, um, you should provide her with one. Having said that, the real world is never that simple, is it? So in on one occasion, when I was faced with a very similar scenario, but maybe um, the, the, the the patient and the partner involved were were of a slightly different um, temperament to yours. When um, the woman was in agony, screaming for help, and eventually we made the decision to um, ask her husband to leave the room so we could give an epidural, and he refused. And eventually security helped him leave the room and she had her epidural. It worked perfectly. And the result was a complete breakdown um, in in any form of relationship with the woman, because once she wasn't in pain, she was beside herself with rage at how we treated her partner. So I think what I'm saying is there's no right answer. Tread carefully. There's some unexpected, unforeseen consequences, whatever you do. David, is it possible for exhaustion and severe pain to deprive somebody of capacity? Um, so the simple answer to that question is yes, but like Felicity said, nothing's ever simple in this world. And the answer is better really put as it is possible for pain and exhaustion to diminish someone's capacity, but to diminish it to the point where a woman cannot request pain relief because of a prior statement to that effect is uh, really something that I think society would have great difficulty in coming to terms with, and entirely understandably. How much would your capacity have to be diminished to get to the point where you essentially, metaphorically, pat her on the head and say, terribly sorry, dear, you just carry on screaming, this is what you signed earlier. That, that's that's never going to be an acceptable scenario. And in practice, uh, a woman going through the physiological process of labour, however painful and however awful and however tiring and exhausting it is, must always be regarded as having capacity, except in very, very unusual circumstances. The answer to your overall question is, well, I wouldn't start from there in the first place. If somebody writes that in the birth plan, they should be encouraged to sit down with an anaesthetist, with an obstetrician, with a midwife, with whoever, and go through that birth plan and discuss the areas which might be problematic later on and, and, and discuss with them whether they want to consider changing that in view of the possibility they don't really want, know what's going to happen. Thank you, David. Now, Nula, um, I sat down with this woman and I said, would you like me to describe in detail the risks of epidural analgesia? at which point she literally grabbed me by the scrubs and said, do you want to die? Just <laughs> do it. Um, would you then go ahead and say, well, I can't just do it. I want to talk to you all about the risks and benefits. Is it acceptable for a woman to say, I don't want to know about the risk. I just want you to do it. Um, I think it probably is. Yes. I, I mean, just following on from what my colleagues have said, um, picking up on what David said, I think you really it's possibly unacceptable for a woman to get to be in labor with such a didactic birth plan and really we should all be endeavoring to try and pick up these women and to to find out the reasons why they hold such strong feelings 
And, and one of the trainee networks in London, I think the London trainee network has done a study on this, looking at the provision of analgesia information to women before delivery. And we don't do very well at the moment. And I think we need to do better. But coming back to answer your question, one of the things I always think is that to perform an epidural, you, it's not something you can simply do to the patient. You need a degree of cooperation for the patient. You either need to sit them up or put them in the left lateral position. And so, and I always feel that if there's that, that degree of cooperation, I, I know that the, the legal minds might disagree with that, but I, if there's that degree of cooperation, as well as the, the, the verbal consent that has been offered by them saying, please just do it. I think you've got uh, other uh, um, tacit consent by virtue of the fact that they're cooperating with you doing the procedure. And certainly on in my labor ward uh, charts, on the charts we use at Northwick Park, we have a box which says, um, which we use to describe the, the, the seeking consent process. But there's also a box that says um, in extremist declined conversation. And that is known to be ticked on occasions. Now, David, we've had discussions about exactly this in, in the past. And you have made the point very cogently that you should at least make an attempt to provide information of the risks and benefits to the of epidural analgesia to the patient, even if that attempt is Butted, and then you should make an entry in the notes. Do I summarise your view accurately? You do. Um, I know we're going to go on to talk about the, the new GMC guidance on yeah. consent. And interestingly, this time round, the GMC has something to say uh, about whether, when, as they describe it, the patient has chosen an option but doesn't want to discuss the details. Uh, they say you uh, are really obliged to explain to them they need to have some information before you can proceed. And they say such as whether the procedure is invasive, what level of pain or discomfort they might experience and what can be done to minimise this, anything they should do to prepare for the intervention and if it involves any risk of serious harm. So there's a suggestion really there from the GMC that there is a, a small kernel, a nub of information that you must get across before you can uh, reasonably and ethically impose uh, 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 treat a patient with the procedure that they want however much they're demanding it. Now we will come back to the GMC's new guidance on consent. Now because all three of you are acknowledged experts none of you actually said whether you do the epidural or not so I'm going to press you on this. Is So Nula you're, you're, and you've indicated you and Felicity you do it as well. Okay I think yes. I think that's fair enough. It's really difficult to deny a patient in severe pain the pain relief she requests when you have the skills and ability to do it safely. Now, inevitably, we're going to talk about consent. One of the important relatively recent developments in consent process in this country is the Montgomery ruling. And firstly, we're going to turn to you now and ask you in a very few numbers of sentences in a way that is incredibly easy for us to understand what difference did the montgomery ruling make to the status of consent and specifically with regard to obstetric anesthesia where there are always consent issues surrounding what we do as clinicians so i could answer that in two ways in some ways it made no difference at all because actually all it did was bring the law in line with um, professional guidance which with what the GMC and uh, the various um, sort of bodies and associations have been telling us for years about consent. Um, 
the other answer is in legally it uh, really fundamentally changed the landscape so in terms of consent the the change was from the legal perspective and david if i get the nuances wrong tell me but the the um the test moved from what uh, uh, on the basis of what a reasonable uh, clinician would um tell a patient what a reasonable clinician would do the the bolam test to what a reasonable patient would expect um to be told so uh, the the legal the legal movement was from the legal uh, the reasonable doctor to the reasonable patient um in terms of obstetric anesthesia i don't think it's changed very much because we were um following very much the gmc guidance which has always um been and it uh, remains that you should try and um understand what the patient in front of you would want to know when you're trying to obtain consent um i think it's accepted that it's had a fairly fundamental effect on um obstetric practice and i think i'll leave that there so nilla i i'm going to come to you next uh, daniel sokol who is a well-known lawyer and and ethicist had had a, a a twitter outburst in the last few days where he basically said that montgomery seems to try to persuade doctors to mention even the most vanishingly rare complications if they are potentially serious so let us take for instance that you are consenting somebody to undergo a single shot spinal for cesarean section and otherwise fit woman now it is known that there is an incidence after single shot spinal of permanent deafness and permanent blindness they are breathtakingly rare incredibly rare but any sensible patient would want to know about the risk of blindness are we obliged to tell our patients all those things and if we aren't where do we draw the line well, I, I think it's an incredibly difficult situation and scenario and i think in truth it's something that i struggle with you know pretty much on a daily basis um because it's all you know about the prudent patient and what people want to know I, on a, I try to put myself in the position of the patient, you know, and I my basic mantra about everything I undertake is, would I be would I be prepared to have um, whatever I'm intending to do to this patient, and what would I want to know? I, I think you've also got to we have to function and we have to work and get through work, um, but taking into account the patient's wishes and the the legal framework which with we have to work but i think you have to there has to be a balance between pragmatism and realism and and in this the sort of scenario you described of those vanishingly rare complications of blindness and deafness associated with spinal anesthesia my simple answer is no i wouldn't routinely mention those um and i i we would struggle to think of a scenario or a patient where i would mention those vanishingly rare complications and I hope that, you know, in the incredibly unlikely scenario, gosh, I hope I'm not blighting myself now, that one of those occurred into a patient I provided care, that um, that as common sense legal opinion would prevail. But it's very difficult. And, and that's why it's an ethical argument, because for ultimately there is no right or wrong answer. And as a clinician, you can only do your best 
and use your best judgment at in that at that particular time. So, David, coming to you, uh, Nula is going to deny uh, the patient information which a reasonable patient uh, would wish to know. Uh, can, can you support her approach or do you find it difficult to support her approach? Uh, listen, I think she's right about balancing out pragmatism and, uh, and the legality of the situation. Uh, and people have misinterpreted Montgomery, particularly to indicate that Montgomery says you must explain everything, however unlikely uh, to a patient, particularly if it's uh, if it uh, is a serious risk. That's not what Montgomery is about. What Montgomery is about, the message we should take from Montgomery is that consent is a dialogue, it is that it is not about person A giving information to person B. It is as much about person B seeking information and asking questions and person A anticipating what questions person B might ask if they were not in a somewhat subservient position to the doctor who's looming over them. It's about mutual respect and autonomy. And as long as we bear that in mind, the specifics are probably less important. I'm very interested in the question of, of blindness, deafness, uh, and whether you explain it to a patient about to have a spinal anaesthetic, because we do explain some astonishingly rare risks of spinal anaesthetic to patients. It's pretty standard practice now, and, and should be, to warn a patient that they may get a spinal hematoma, for example, and end up paralysed. Astonishingly rare phenomenon, and probably no uh, more common than blindness or deafness. There are some things that we tend to mention and some things we don't tend to mention, and that's as much down to societal norms as anything else. Uh, and I don't think there's a clear answer to that. The GMC have tried to help, actually, the rather pragmatic uh, paragraph in their new guidance, which says uh, it wouldn't be reasonable to share every possible risk of harm, potential complication or side effect. Instead, you should tailor the discussion to each individual patient guided by what matters to them and share information in a way they can understand. That's a much more relaxed attitude uh, in their 2020 guidance than was even in their 2008 guidance, which this one supersedes. Now, Felicity, you're keen to make a point. Um, I think we should not forget that there is, I, there is danger in the, um, the, the, the concept of full disclosure. And um, the, as, as David said, the GMC doesn't doesn't um, support that in all circumstances. And um, other authorities have also suggested that actually it's 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 deserting our professional responsibility if if we behave just as um, sources of information without being um, you know sort of deciding w which information to impart. So um, I, I would say I would actively discourage so-called full disclosure of every single um, possible risk. Now, Nula, coming to you, would it be acceptable then if I were talking to a patient and I described the relatively common risks and the things that I thought that she would want to know, can I then use a sort of a bucket chop expression like, and there are some other incredibly rare complications which can be very serious, which I'm happy to talk you through if you would like me to. Is that an acceptable approach as a way of covering off those incredibly rare things in case they have a particular interest? Um, well, I, I would caution against any generic bucket shop expressions. Um, and I think I would take the lead from David about promoting dialogue. Um, 
the conversation is a two-way street and, and I think you you take your cues verbal and non-verbal from the patient you know I start my risk discussion with the the more common more mild side effects hypotension itch and then I move on to the uh, the more severe but much more infrequent complications and I think just depending on how the patient responded to those discussions you know I would try and use my judgment at that stage and and, it, and if I thought that they were they the, those really infrequent, those really rare complications might be important to the patient. I, I'm, I might try and discuss them with them, but I would, I would avoid generic bucket shop expressions. I think these discussions need to be much more individualised than, um, than sometimes we, we, I think we presume or, or we suggest. David. Uh, and to do this in a mutually respectful way is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Uh, uh, particularly in the world of obstetric anaesthesia, where patients are often very distressed, where there's often very short time spans when we can get information across before action has to be taken. Uh, to establish a, uh, a respectful relationship where the patient uh, immediately trusts the person sitting in front of them to give them the information that they require is a very difficult thing to do, but it's very necessary as well. And actually, uh, establishing that trust is probably one of the most important things we have to do. Nula, let's come back to you. Uh, and the other thing I just think is that um, the, the consent process, I think, is perhaps harmed to some extent by the restrictions of COVID, um, the masks, the social distancing, the, the, the subtle th strategies that you might use to try and build up a rapport with the patient, build a connection with the patient. Some of those are now taken from us with this very sterile way that we have now have to work. And I, I hope I'm not going to get into trouble, but I make a point of taking off my mask, but standing, you know, more, I don't know, as far as I possibly can away from the patient. Because I think you really lose something when you can't see somebody's face completely and when they can't see my face. So it's slightly as an aside, but I think that the consent process is potentially harmed sometimes by the restrictions of COVID. Now, are we letting our trainees down? It's very simple for the three, four of us. Between us, we have well over 100 years of obstetric anaesthetic experience, <laughs> believe it or not. And so we've had a lot of these interactions with patients. We have an ability born through experience of being able to appraise perhaps what a patient is going to need or how they're going to react. We have trainees. Are we as organisations, the Royal College and the Obstetric Anaesthetist Association, should we be giving more training and more guidance to trainees about how to take valid consent in obstetric anaesthesia? Because a lot of then preoperative notes I see is just a, a, tick, a series of ticked boxes as to whether they mention things. Do we do enough? I'm going to come to you, Felicity. Do we do enough? And if we don't do enough, what can we do that would help trainees a little bit? So I think we need to be careful between um, the process of obtaining consent and how we train people to do that and how we record that 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 process has been undertaken. And I think there's a tendency, um, as as with everything we do, to get obsessed with the record rather than the um, the the procedure or the action. So. Um, I'm less worried about boxes that are ticked or otherwise. And I think what we can do more of is not training our, our um, trainees in consent, but training them in communications um, skills and and um, what lies at the really at the, um, the, the, the the foundations of 
informed consent is shared decision making. And so it's that and communication skills that I think we could do more um, to train our trainees. Now, we're going to just come back briefly to the new GMC guidance. So you, you mentioned it already, but could you give us a, a short summary of any changes that you've seen in it that are of significance to anaesthetists in general and to obstetric anaesthetists in particular? Um, so it, it's surprising in many ways that it's taken 12 years for the GMC to revise their 2008 guidance. Uh, a lot's changed in the world of consent. And I think one of the things that struck me reading the new document, which comes into play, I think, in uh, yeah, 9th of November this year, so may well be in play by the time you are viewing this, um, is how little has changed. And I think that's partly because the 2008 guidance preempted an awful lot of the legal changes in the consent process uh, because they were primarily... Um, ethical guidelines rather than legal ones uh, and and uh, it, it I, I don't pretend to speak on behalf of the GMC in any way shape or form at all but in this respect I think they've actually done quite well and reading the new guidance as I've uh, hinted before there are many areas where uh, things have become perhaps a little more pragmatic than they were before so uh, I mean one of the key paragraphs for example uh, talking about what information you had to get across when discussing benefits and harms. You used to say you must, and it now starts you should usually. Um, and, and that kind of thing uh, makes me think that they have had some clinicians working on this as well as um, ethicists and lawyers. Uh, in general, what the new guidance does is a change of tone more than anything else. It talks much more about uh, the relationship uh, between the doctor and the patient uh, and the uh, the way the two should communicate with each other and suggests ways, for example, that the, uh, the doctor seeking consent can find out what's important to the patient they're seeking it from. Now, Nula, just I, I know that there's been mentioned the new GMC about translation, and I'm sure you, like I've had many instances in which uh, a family member was translating for a patient who could not speak English. And the interchange goes along the line of, would you like to, uh, to ask her whether she has any questions? And then the patient goes on for about two minutes in their language, and then the translator says no. And you're stuck in this slightly awkward feeling that you may not be getting the full picture. Do you think it's reasonable for patients to have their relatives translating or should we should be a little bit firmer about having professional translator or language line or something like that? Um, well, absolutely, yes. And I, I, I don't I generally feel very uncomfortable about using a family member as a translator because of this this constant worry that you're not getting the full picture. Um, I think that you should go to whatever lengths you have to to try and find a, a, a more objective translator. Uh, certainly in my hospital, and one of the benefits of the modern NHS is that staff now come from very diverse backgrounds. And certainly in the middle of the night on Labelled when I was during COVID, I remember finding a Romanian translator on one of the wards who was able to come and help translate for a, a Romanian patient for me. I, I, I personally find um, the um, modern strategies, language line, etc., slightly 
difficult, just the, the, the practical difficulties of getting phones and the, and the disconnect as well, just using a third party that you actually can't see. It's never a very easy conversation. But I, I think it really you know, it behoves us all to seek an objective translator um, when you're seeking consent or having a conversation with a woman. Now, we've got both Felicity and David wanting to make points. Felicity, you first and then David. I have a feeling we're going to make the same point, but I think actually it's it's in the guidance that you should not use family members as translators. So it's, you know, our sort of professional responsibility to try and um, avoid that situation as well as, as you know, sort of as Nuna said, because it's it's not it's, you know, it's 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 not um, really acceptable. David, would you agree with that? I would agree with it, but in practice, it can be extraordinarily difficult. And 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 uh, there are uh, we are all very reliant on a service called um, um, Language Line or or the equivalent thereof, which is a phone-based uh, uh, translation system. And it's not foolproof; it's it's far from it. And some of the dialects are, uh, and languages are particularly badly represented. And before now, I've I've just had to use my sensible, practical decision to. Uh, ask a 15-year-old daughter of a woman in labour to translate on her behalf. And I mean, that's, a, that's an appalling situation to be in. But to my mind, at that time, it was the best solution in an extraordinarily difficult circumstance. And I have to say, since then, I've counselled the daughter on becoming a medical student. She was, uh, she was so taken by the whole process that she's decided to follow a career in medicine. Nula, you wanted to come back on that one. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to brief plug for the OAA. We, we don't offer 24-7 um, translation services, but we do uh, provide information about epidurals in multiple translations. And if all else fails, at least you can try and give some information in, in a woman's language. Um, and with, there's lots of available in the middle of the night. They're easily downloadable from the OAA website. Am I allowed a, a quick plug there for the OAA? You're allowed a long plug for the OAA. That material is really, really good. Felicity. Um, yes, it's it's forty different languages. It's sort of currently, um, and I think the idea of providing information in a timely manner is something that we we really need to um, put a lot of effort into. So in, we have we have a captive audience. Women are pregnant for nine months. I think uh, obstetric anaesthetists we must somehow make more of that opportunity. Um, to to provide women with um, relevant information, and and when I first started as a trainee, I would I would run a, an antenatal class at least twice a week about uh, um, pain pain and pain relief in labour, and that that got downsized to one section of a class called common interventions, and then um, we were axed altogether. I think we we need to find our way back in into the antenatal period so we can provide information for, for women. Uh, David, you were mentioning to me earlier that one interpretation of the new guidance is that we all have to speak Welsh. Is that correct? Well, I do hope not. I, in fact, I believe you are a Welshman. I don't know if you can speak Welsh. I have some basic Welsh which will allow me to order two beers in a pub, but that's about as far as it goes. But yes, it transpires, and I'm grateful for your advice on this as well, but it's also in the GMC leaflet that there may be a legal requirement, even when working outside Wales, uh, to be able to provide information in Welsh to someone who uh, is a Welsh language speaker. Uh, and that doesn't apply to any other language, as I understand it. 
So there you are. The message this evening is start learning Welsh. We're going to close soon, but I'm just going to take us to one different area to discuss, and that's whether we as obstetric anaesthetists actually do conduct the consent process correctly when we are giving patients choice between general and regional anaesthesia for planned cesarean section. Because I've got a sneaking suspicion that most of us don't really mention general except in passing. Whereas the reality is that general anaesthesia for cesarean section in a planned procedure is usually pretty safe. Am I, am I right or wrong here? Noon, I'm going to come to you first. Do you think that we give a balanced consent process to the majority of women who are scheduled for cesarean section? Um, well, my, my feeling and my experience is not. And uh, look, I must put my hands up and say up until the last couple of years, I think I was as guilty of this as, as the next person, just simply offering a woman a, a regional an anaesthetic with only a very cursory mention of general anaesthesia. But I, I think it is incumbent upon us to offer both options, as you do in any scenario. You know, the, the most basic answer to a, any anaesthetic question is what sort of anaesthetic? Well, you can have a general anaesthetic or you can have a regional anaesthetic. And, and I think that, we, as you said, in a, in, certainly in an elective setting, uh, the risks of general anaesthesia are, are probably not as much as we are definitely not as much as we fear. And I, I think it should be part of the balanced consent process that we all talk about. And Felicity, do you think the basis of that should be providing information in written form to women that gives a more balanced view? Or would you say the OAA's material provides a very balanced view already? Um, well, I would say that. I, um, I, I think um, the, the, the information you can get from the website labourpains.com is balanced. I would say I have also probably changed my practice. I'm, um, when when I was a trainee, you, you were you were given the third degree if you d gave a GA. You had to explain yourself. So we were very very reluctant to um, give GAs. But I've I've changed totally now, and I'm completely relaxed about it. And I think ethically and and professionally, you have to say um, general anaesthesia is an alternative um, approach for your cesarean section. It's not just something. Uh, you mention in in um, in case the regional fails, it's it's a legitimate alternative, and I'm very happy to discuss that. Nula, just following on from what Felicity said, uh, I think that the the in years gone by there was a, a fanatical obsession with obstet in obstetric anaesthesia about avoiding general anaesthesia, and I've heard lots of dreadful stories of trainees being hauled over the coals. The, the morning after the night before when they'd given a general anaesthetic. And I, I very much hope that those days are gone. And I think that while we, it wouldn't be my first choice, and I think that it's, it's the least preferable mode of anaesthesia for caesarean section, I think it's sometimes very necessary. And general anaesthesia is, after all, the cornerstone of what we do and the provision of a safe general anaesthetic to any patient, obstetric or otherwise, which should, which should be a, an integral part of everything that everyone can do. Now, Felicity, a comment from you. I'm then going to go to David for a final comment. And then time is rushing on. We, we, need, we could talk forever, but we need to close it down. So Felicity first. So the other day I heard someone comment that, um, that spinal anaesthesia was the default position in obstetrics. And I objected then and I object now to that. It's not, I hope and I believe it 
it's the result of shared decision making and 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 that's that, that that's how we've reached that position in in obstetrics now david your extensive medical legal experience going over many many years in which you have carefully dissected some of the greater problems that have gone wrong with regional anesthesia and general anesthesia has that coloured your views and does that colour the way that you describe the options to a patient? Have you seen more problems with general or regional? Well, um, I think it's fair to say that if anything, regional is overrepresented in the world of, of medical legal practice over general anaesthesia, notwithstanding the obvious differences in incidents in which we use them. The difference is, of course, that the complications that arise from regional anaesthesia, which prompt legal action sometimes, are less severe in general terms than those which occur with general anaesthesia. Uh, and, and that does colour you slightly, doesn't it? But certainly, a general anaesthetic is more likely to go perfectly right from start to finish than a regional anaesthetic is. In that, a patient getting a regional anaesthetic has a small but significant chance of feeling discomfort or pain during the operation. And a patient under a general anaesthetic has less chance of that occurring. Uh, and that's actually quite an important issue because I think if I was a patient, I might want to know that. I think we are driven in this process by, again, societal norms. And I've mentioned them before. When I started in obstetric anaesthesia, it was the routine practice to give patients a general anaesthetic. And uh, it would be very rare if a patient came to you and said, but I've heard rumour I could be awake for this. Now it's exactly the opposite. Um, and we do reflect societal norms in what we do. And we have to be careful that in doing so, it is reasonable for us to recommend a process, and I think every obstetric anaesthetist in Great Britain, if they were having a cesarean section, would choose a regional rather than a general anaesthetic, I think. So it's perfectly reasonable to recommend, but it is not acceptable to coerce or to hide information from a patient. Uh, and that's the line we must not step across. And Felicity, you get the very last word of this podcast. Um. I think we we have two options and we have the professional responsibility to decide which to take. And that's between offering um, our, our preferred option uh, for that patient and recommending it. And for the for the morbidly obese um, woman with a, a difficult airway, uh, um, having an elective section, I would recommend a regional anaesthetic um, for her slim sister with a good airway, odd offer. So, uh, ladies and gents, uh, time is more than up. I'd like to thank those who have been listening to this out there very much indeed for tuning in to this podcast about the ethics of obstetric anaesthesia. I'd like to thank Fiona Anderson from the college who's been quietly in the background making sure everything goes smoothly. And I would very much like to thank David Bogod, Felicity Patton, Nula Lucas for being our experts. It's been a fascinating conversation. Just to remind you, there is extensive patient information available on the Royal College of Anesthetists website, rcoa.ac.uk, and particularly excellent information for women who are pregnant. So remember, ladies and gentlemen, laborpains.com. It's very easy to remember. Thank you all and have a very good day. 
Thank you for listening to this RCOA podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.